to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch West Side Story. Two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love, but tensions between their respective friends build toward tragedy. Drama. Dancing. (laughs) Music. This movie has a lot, a lot going on. It does. And it's a pure tragedy that I, Diana Lorraine, had not seen this until now. I made it this long in my life. This is, this is, this is, I'm offended by myself for having not seen this. So uh, in order to pick this up, to pick this movie apart, we have to have a guest, David. We do need a guest. And who is our guest today? Our guest today is a co-host of Rupalp's Padres and Mystery Spotcast. It's Claudia Amanabar. Claudia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I am the I'm the co-host of a Star Wars podcast and a Supernatural podcast. So I'm very, very qualified to come here and talk about a musical. <laughs> we also co-host a Riverdale podcast. So like we're here. You know, you. Yeah. And My Little Pony and My Little Pony. We're not going to talk about My Little Pony right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I did. I dated a brony in college. So you know what? We all make mistakes. Facts. <laughs> yeah, my my experience with this movie is actually quite. Uh, I'm gonna drop a drop a truth bomb on you guys. Um, oh, no. I I did grow up doing the musical. Th- I, I grew up as a dancer and then doing musical theater or whatever. And um, I was like dance moms, like competition dance kind of thing. And then I went to a more like professional dance studio that was more like. I would say like career focused than like competition focused. So I did more like musical theater training there. And and I want to say it was my first like musical theater intensive camp there. We did do not all of West Side Story, but we did like the major pieces of it in workshop there. And I was Anita in it. Um, (laughs) So you're like, oh, West Side Story. I'm like, I I did it. And we did have a Broadway choreographer. So I I did. And I think it was like maybe a couple years. I was in high school. So it was like a couple Mm -hmm. years after the revival with Karen Olivo had just come out. So we used used like that arrangement. And I think we were doing a lot of like similar choreography Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it was very difficult um (laughs) and yeah it was a cool thing when i was when i was a dancer (laughs) i'm a much better singer though (laughs) so uh but yeah that's my that's my west side story fucking lore drop (laughs) 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 that is so cool that that makes you incredibly qualified to talk about this show i I guess i i I guess i don't know Yeah, I've never seen this, which is just offensive. My experience with this movie is having seen like a good chunk of it in English class while we were talking about Romeo and Juliet. So that's respectable. But you haven't at all, Diana. I, I haven't. My my high school did the musical, which was a big freaking deal. Um, my high school theater was the type that was self sufficient. So like we sold enough tickets to fuel. The cost of the, of everything. Ours was very similar. <laughs> so, like, they welded scaffolding that was three story high that was within in like inches of the backstage because it all came on stage and it all came off stage. Like, that's what we were capable of doing. And my brother auditioned for it. It was a senior year in high school. Um, he auditioned for Bernardo, forgetting the fact that my brother cannot sing to save his life. Like. 
at all. Like it's offensively bad the way he sings. <laughs> but my brother can dance like nobody's business. That's all you need. So he got cast as Indio. And so he was like one of the lead like fighters and like the opening fight sequence that they had, which I mean, I have to say like, this is like, I can remember so much of this musical because my mother had us go to it almost every single performance, which was really cool because my brother was very heavily featured in it. He had so much fun doing it. It was very well done. And then that also happened to be, I was in, I was a freshman in high school, but our freshmen at that time were in a different um, high school building. And at that age, they had us all go to the high school to go see the musical. So not only did I see it in the evening, I, as a freshman, had to go with all of my classmates to the high school building <laughs> to go see the musical that my brother was in. Oh, like, this is nah. ridiculous. So I think I saw it like eight or nine times. Oh, my God. And not once during this time did I go, hey, let me go watch the original movie. Yeah. But this is just sad. You saw the stage version. It's fine. I really It's sure. true. You did see the stage version and not this. And, a, and not an overly sanitized high school version. Like, I know there there are a couple things that they, like, removed. Just be like, we don't need that. Like, they're high school students. They don't, like, Tony doesn't need to take <laughs> off his shirt. Like, it's fine. Like, we're not doing that shit. Because the girl who played Maria was a pastor's daughter. <laughs> it wasn't happening. Oh, my God. We're in Texas. I mean. Yeah, yeah it's fine. <laughs> but the other thing is that my mom loves to make up dumb songs. I do it too. But every song she makes up is to the tune of I Feel Pretty. Going on with you, Maria. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay. And I pity any girl who's in me today. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel and so pretty. We can believe I'm real. See the pretty girl in that mirror there. <laughs> Every single one. <laughs> it's either that or she's singing How Do You Solve a Problem Like Diana from Sound of Music, which is a sick bird. That's a really good bird on me. I was in the symphonic orchestra too, so like we weren't in class together, but we would have to practice after school so we could be with the band kids to play symphonic music. I was trying to think. I was like, actually, I think it was in high school we did do the the Leonard Bernstein symphonic arrangement mm-hmm. of what the West Side Story music. I did, I think, also play that with my orchestra in high school. <laughs> um, you, know, you know everything about West Side Story. Uh, I know Leonard Bernstein. I love you. I love you, King. But too many time signatures. Um, <laughs> I have trauma. It's a lot. Um, but <laughs> uh, he's he's Lenny. But when it's good, Lenny. it's good. That's true. It's it good, does it's hit good. like nobody's business, though. So yeah. I'll give him that. West Side Story is a masterful, magical thing. Like it's iconic. You can't get past that. And there's a reason that we're going to remake it eight bajillion times. It's going to get staged. You know, we've got another movie coming out this year, but we've got we're going to have another five productions done somewhere in the near vicinity and high schools will perform it forever. This movie. Huh? Yep. I can't just trash it. It's not garbage. Mm -hmm. But man, (laughs) we could do a lot better here. We could do a lot better. I'm just going to say it. Our two leads suck. They're bad. 
Tony and Maria suck. They're awful in this movie. They do kind of set the precedent, though, like because of the way that the movie is like everybody just expects the Tony and Maria in any production to also be like, yeah, they could be OK. But everybody else really you only care about Anita and you only care about everybody else. <laughs> like, like the characters with the most personality are not your leads, which is very bizarre to me. It's in keeping with Romeo and Juliet. Like, does anybody really care about Romeo and Juliet? No. <laughs> I can see that, but they're both like cardboard cutouts of actors, essentially. <laughs> they're so Oh, the bad. actors, yeah. The characters themselves are always going to be those types of archetypes, but you can have good actors mm-hmm. play those roles and still have them be that kind of wooden and, and stiff. And the sad part here is, Richard Bamer and Natalie Wood are both very good actors. <laughs> they are. <laughs> this is not their movie. I don't even know if it's them that's the problem here. I think it's a lot of other stuff going on. <laughs> I mean, I I think this movie may suffer from trying to do a few too many things. Yes. Well, uh, that might be fair. Is it going to be gritty and real? Is it going to be a wild juvenile gang ballet? Is it going to be both and be a mess? <laughs> Because I kind of feel like that's what it is. But that's why it's camp. <laughs> oh, for sure. So actually, um, camp. here's what you do. Anytime you have a movie like this that doesn't know what the hell. Here's my hot take. And you're just going to have to roll with me here on this one. I apologize for the sentence that I am about to say. <laughs> I think that West Side Story is the same kind of camp that Venom is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. All right. It is a melange of, I guess, many genres or many styles or whatever that you're like, this shouldn't work. And some, and it's very puzzling, but it is kind of a bop. So I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you would technically call that, though. You call it camp. <laughs> so we just, we just got done with a more directly miscast movie because we just talked about Guys and Dolls. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and talk about a movie that's really still very good, but is woefully miscast. And as loath as I am to give Marlon Brando any credit, the fact remains that he's doing what he knows how to do as an actor. That's just not what that movie is supposed to have in it. No. Well, I mean, and West Side Story is also, it became like the poster child of miscastings. It was like, Anybody who looks vaguely brown, put them in there. And that became oh, like boy. That became like the thing in musical theater. It was yeah. like whatever. Even though for Anita, like I mean, she talks about it all the time where she's like, you know, this is the first time I actually got to like play somebody who wasn't like somebody's in my race. made. Yeah. Yep. Like, and I had to brown face myself. Yeah. Yes. And then everybody else around her was like <laughs> any random ethnicity. You're like, no, <laughs> it's very bad. No, no, it's 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 horrible. And the fact that, you know, she talks about that she had to wear even darker makeup to try to pull that off. They forced that on her. George Chakras, who was a good friend, still a good friend of hers. She said he had looked like somebody had taken him by the ankles and dipped in him in a bucket of mud. She recalled saying to someone in the makeup department, I don't know why I have to be this color. This is not my color. And the makeup person's response was, what are you, racist? Wow, that sounds like what they did for all the extras on the Disney Aladdin live action. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
Hollywood's fun. <laughs> Hollywood has not improved at all. Um, oh. Well, so this, I mean, she, like, uh, hi, I'm white and Latina. We are the same. <laughs> same. <laughs> like, like, no, uh, yeah. girl. Like, yes. ooh, it's very, yes. it's very bad. I, who is the singing voice for Maria? That is Marnie Nixon. Yeah, because I know it's, you know, it's somebody different, and mm-hmm. this this is another mismatch here is the level of ADR on this movie. Yeah, it's so bad. She was Sister Sophia in The Sound of Music. Shut up. And played Grandmother Fa in Mulan. No. Yeah. Amongst other okay. things. And she's she's done a ton of other VO she work, She does too. everything. Yeah. Damn. She has a beautiful voice, but it's wrong. It's wrong. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't match Hollywood at all. No, there's there's a little uncanny valley with the dubbing and the acting work that they don't match up real well. And there's whole stories and sagas about how that happened in the production of this. Mm-hmm. When we find out how this directing stuff went, I think that's going to inform some things. Okay. Because there's a whole bunch of bullshit going on behind the scenes for this movie, too. This is one of those, the fact that it became such an iconic big deal as it was is kind of a miracle because it's... Bonkers it even got finished. <laughs> that was going to be my question because there are famously in the history of film moments, and I would say in the history of musicals, because this is where I'm going to out myself as like knowing a lot about the history of musicals and pieces of the history of cinema that I am mm-hmm. not as up on. Shout out to uh, my classes on American musical theater. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a visual communications major, not a, a cinema studies. But there are like famously periods of time in film, whatever. I mean, even more recently, like the writer strike era, for instance, where shit got really weird and things produced from that time. You can see like similarities between them because you're like, why was it bad? And it was like, oh, it was bad for a very specific reason. And a lot of things had that. And I, mm-hmm. that's why I'm wondering, like, was this like that? Or was it one of those, oh, no, the production behind this is a literal cluster. It um, is specific <laughs> to the production. Yes. And we will get into it. Oh, no. <laughs> so let's start with our budget. This is kind of where we start every time. It costs $6 million to make. And today's money, that's about $55 million. That's that a pretty big no that's a big budget for this time i'm just thinking about some of that those shots and those sets that feels low it's not (laughs) some of that's on location those aren't sets Mm -hmm. it made 44 million dollars that's roughly 400 million today it is one of the highest grossing films in that era the soundtrack was the best-selling record of the 1960s it is a bop it spent 54 weeks on the Billboard charts. That's twice what Guys and Dolls did. It deserves it. Uh, 100%. I'm just like. I love Guys and Dolls. But like my on. context here is like, that's twice that. And that was yeah. great. It's briefly the greatest selling album ever made for a time. Like it just wow. it sold more copies than anything else. The film ran in Paris for 249 weeks. The longest running film in French history. Shut up. But there are critics. There are critics of this movie. Ebert was fairly measured on this. I'll give him some credit on how he talks because he actually calls it one of his great movies. But then he's also critical of it. He says it remains a landmark of musical history. But if the drama had been as edgy as the choreography, if the lead performances had matched Moreno's fierce concentration, if the gangs had been more dangerous and less like bad boy Archies and Jugheads, if the ending had delivered on the pathos and tragedy of the original, 
there's no telling what might have resulted, unquote. He, he kind of summed up, like, years of musical theater theory in just that much because, God, people have been saying that. I mean, and that was a lot of the discourse with the current revival of West Side Story that went on Broadway. It was supposed to be at the same time that the movie came out, but the movie was delayed by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, the very similar discourse of, like, you know, it wasn't very dangerous. It wasn't very gritty. Or, you know, I mean, I know in the original, they cut out all the swear words. Yes. No, they, all that kind of there's stuff. a whole bunch of stuff they wind up cutting. Yeah. <laughs> from this movie, too. From the original stage production. And I think part of this is that that original stage production was such a huge deal for how gritty and abrasive it was willing to be. It's like talked about in hushed tones about how like, whoa, that production was on stage. And they really stripped it back for the movie because they wanted to make $400 million in 1961. <laughs> they wanted to make a shit ton of money. I don't blame them. Pauline Kale <laughs> called it frenzied hokum with dialogue that was painfully old fashioned and mawkish. The dancing simpering, sickly romantic ballet. And Natalie Wood, quote, so perfectly banal, she destroys all thoughts of love, unquote. And that, that, that's accurate. <laughs> A little fun fact about me is that my favorite form of writing is um, when critics are mean. Um, <laughs> when critics are mean, like, it's not prose, it's not poetry, it's not fiction, it's not a good review. It is when critics are like, I have seen something and I'm about to unleash the full fury of being a bitch. You know what? Critical thinking has gone out the window and it's time for me to be an asshole. And uh, that is when real prose happens. Oh, Polly Kill. <laughs> Frenzied <laughs> hokum. <laughs> I mean, that actually is a really good description, though, where she's like, yeah, it's very, the dialogue's very, what did she say, like juvenile? <laughs> like Painfully old fashioned and mawkish. In the 60s. <laughs> In 1961. Ah! I love it so much. And even Arthur Lorenz said the film was flawed by, quote, bogus accents, bogus dialect, bogus costumes, unquote. Oh, God, the accents. I'll give him the accents. The costumes, no, they're fine. No, no, no. This movie comes down to the cast and the directing. It really does. And to me... It's not a failure of either doing the sort of high camp drama that it is, mm-hmm. like the, the, the crazy dancing, the jets, the sharks, all that stuff that happens in the street is fine, but none of the drama matches that tone. No. You're doing two different movies when you need to do one. Tony and Maria are in a completely different movie. Yeah. They're not connected to this at all. And that doesn't help with how stiff they already feel in their performances. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's it's almost like there's almost like a even like a directorial sh- like shift. It's hard because like it might just be like what the songs are given to or the scenes that are given to different people. Mm-hmm. But like it's definitely like oh the scenes with the two of them like they are by nature more boring, so they like directed them more boring in a way. You're on to something there, but we have to talk about our writing first. Oh no! Mm. So we start with. William Shakespeare. Okay, no, I, I know. He gets on the list, though. He's credited because it's a reimagining of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I thought it was an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, the best film of our time. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I, they were drawing specifically from West. That is also considered an adaptation. Mm-hmm, yes. You know. A punny, <laughs> a punny one, too, with that. Well, Willie, <laughs> Big Willie style needs his residuals. Come on. 
Now, for the play, we have Jerome Robbins. Uh, we mentioned him earlier. He had the original idea, story idea for On the Town. Fantastically weird, bonkers movie. And he's also our choreographer for this film. We have Arthur Lorenz writing the book. We just quoted him. Along with creating this show, he also wrote Gypsy. And before this, he wrote the screenplays for Rope, Home of the Brave, Summertime, and Anastasia from 1956. And after this, The Way We Were and The Turning Point. He wrote The Way We Were? Interesting. And for the screenplay, we have Ernest Lehman. Before this, he wrote The Inside Story, Executive Suite, 1954's Sabrina, The King and I, Somebody Up There Likes Me, Sweet Smell of Success, and North by Northwest. After this, he wrote the screenplay for The Sound of Music, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Hello Dolly, Portnoy's Complaint, Family Plot, and Black Sunday. We've got killers. Wow, he did both West Side Story and The King and I. We got we got the whole gamut of culturally problematic musicals. Mm-hmm. Of brown and yellow face. Good job! Surprise, South Pacific isn't in there. Jesus. I know, right? Well, you know. Jeez. He got Virginia Woolf, though, and god damn, if that isn't one of the best film adaptations of a Broadway thing ever. Damn. Sound of music and Hello, Dolly. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorites. Yeah. These are fantastic writers. Not to mention, we have music and lyrics by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. You know, just those two. You know, I... This is also my other hot take. Another fun fact about me is that my my partner went to NYU Gallatin, but all of their friends went to Tisch. So sometimes I get in a room with their friends and I like to say things to cause chaos. (laughs) So this is not fake. This is just a thing I like to say where I'm like, personally, I think the better Steven is Schwartz and it will come to blows. And I will also say where I'm like, I think Sondheim's best show is West Side Story because he did not write the music. And, and then it will also come to blows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do stand by that. It is his <laughs> show because he didn't write the music. Well, we've, we've made no bones about how much we love Sondheim, but we will not come to blows on this show. That is for certain. I, it's, not like I, it's not like I hate so- I mean, I've done Sweeney Todd. Like, I, I don't hate him. Like. <laughs> I just like to cause chaos. Cause... Well, of course. See, I like to cause chaos by saying that Lloyd Webber is crap. Oh, I, I will agree with you. His only good show is my favorite show, which is Jesus Christ Superstar. Other than that, he's on thin ice. So my opinion on him is that he can only write one good song per show. Oh, that's how I feel about Sondheim. But I also feel <laughs> that way about, about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber, for me, is very much like, like Evita, love that show. Politically, mm. it's terrible. But sure. it, the songs are a bop. They are kind of, it's one song through mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yes. It's for one moment. Same it's a thing good with song, Phantom. You're only, you, you only <laughs> fucking go to Phantom to watch the chandelier. You don't give a shit about anything Literally, else. Literally, people hate me because I'm like, I actually viscerally hate Phantom. I hate it. I've never gone to see it because I fucking hate it. I sat... I watched the movie and I was like, this is garbage. It's it's not good. People are like, how dare you? I'm like, it's bad. It's boring. I mm-hmm. don't like it. It has one, possibly two good songs. Exactly. M- Michael Crawford is a treasure. We will protect him at all costs, but this is trash. Yeah. What do we think of the writing for this movie? <sighs> it's hard because it. I guess, I guess what fun facts can you give us about, I guess, about the adaptation? Because- what are the differences in writing between the the musical and the movie? Other than the toned down language, which we've got the fact that in the original production, instead of saying birth to earth, 
Tony is supposed to reply sperm to worm, which is way more fun. Sondheim's gone on record as talking about how at the end of Officer Krupke, and that was in the original show, he always wanted to say fuck you, but they wouldn't allow him to do it. Um, But during the prologue to America, when one of the girls says we came with our hearts open, they say in the movie, you came with your mouth open. In the production, it was originally you came with your pants open. Uh, I thought it was legs open. Yeah, I was like, Same concept. Um, Sondheim, that's a little problematic. It's a little, it's a little problematic coming from you, love. And they did make, they did make a lot of different revisions to America. The complaints about the Broadway version were that it was mostly just belittling to Puerto Ricans. Instead, they changed it for the film so that it would focus on the tension and the racism that they were facing in New York. Okay. It's a good update. It's a smart update. The biggest thing that they did was they rearranged the order of the songs. Yes, I forgot about this. And this is a directing choice. Robert Wise specifically said, I don't want us to break the tension. In the show, I Feel Pretty and G. Officer Krupke come after the rumble. And the whole reason why on stage was the producers at the time thought, we don't do big time tragic death in musicals. So we want to lighten it up in the second act a little bit before we hit the ending. Okay. Wise goes, we're making a movie. It needs to be one solid through line. And when we hit that rumble, there's no break in tension. It's going to be dark the whole way through. So they rearrange it for I Feel Pretty to come to the beginning of act two and Cool and G Officer Krupke get switched in the order of the run show. Mm Mm-hmm. This has been a huge debate for years of fans of the movie and the musical on which one should be right. Sondheim had actually spoken about it during the production to say he thought that that should be the way that they ordered the songs. And because of that, that led into this whole debate and legend. He actually has confessed. He's like, I feel kind of responsible for this. Like, I, it was something I made as a note during the production, but now it's become a whole fucking thing. <laughs> Okay. POV, which one is worse, West Side Story fans or Star Wars fans? You discuss. (laughs) It's a a great question. Star Wars fans. (laughs) I don't know. Have you met met theater people? (laughs) Yes, I am one of those people. I'm also a Star Wars fan, but I'm more willing to walk away from the Star Wars fight personally. But I know so many people, that dude right there, who will not. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'll walk away from a star. I don't know enough about Star Wars to get in a Star Wars fight. And I love Star Wars, but I can tussle about either. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> it's uh I'll be like, let's go. I I do I do love to am I the drama? That well, I guess that's my question, because like almost, I feel like almost all musicals have this problem because like, they all go through workshop a lot and then things get moved around and all this kind of stuff. So then people are like, what was the original intent, whatever? And you're like, well, there isn't there isn't really one. I mean, in Sondheim, there's, there's been interviews with Sondheim talking about the show where he's like, first of all, you have to remember, I was writing the lyrics. I am not in charge of this show in any way, shape, or form. It was Lenny's show. <laughs> so he's like, all day long, people people talk about it as Sondheim show, and he always, always deflects back to, this was Leonard Bernstein's baby. This was his child. I wrote lyrics for it to try to match what he was doing and tried to make it witty and fit the theme, but this was, he was working mostly with Arthur Lorenz, and he was like, I had nothing to do with, with how iconic this music became. <laughs> so I think part of him feels bad because they always go back to him, and it's like, Stop using me as your fucking source. This is not my musical. 
has Lenny ever has Lenny ever commented on this? Like So there's there's one story I know, and this was from actually doing a research project for a professor, is that Leonard Bernstein was brought in to watch the film when they had the music ready to go and the orchestrations. Mm-hmm. The original people who orchestrated the film orchestrated the Broadway show. For the film, they upped the tempo and they brought the pitch up. I forgot about that. And Bernstein was apparently in tears saying, you ruined it. You ruined my music. And legendarily was completely unhappy with this show. Barely had anything to do with the promotion or anything. But when they played him the music that they were going to use for the film, he went, this is horrible. (laughs) Because they totally threw off what he'd made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense. Because like, if you look at look at the sheet music for that like it is so specific down to like measures of random time signatures and like stylistically how he wanted something to be so for you to pitch it up is like it gives a completely different vibe and i that's also why i think like when i listen to it on spotify or whatever i think i listen to like the original broadway cast Mm -hmm. recording whatever and this is a thing I think that people with any musical, whatever, like you always listen to the version that you grew up with or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know when I first saw this movie or whatever. It wasn't one of the musicals that like my mom played in the car or whatever. Because, well, you know, we didn't have Spotify. We had CDs. I remember with West Side Story, if you listen to like the symphonic dances version versus the movie version, it's very different. And yeah. I remember like when I was practicing this with my orchestra, I think in high school or whatever. There's a lot of like unlearning you have to do, like for all of the people, especially first chairs and stuff, who, if you are very familiar with the movie, where our teacher had to be like, that's not how it sounds. That's too fast. Stop. Like, you have to read what's on the page, not what you remember from the movie. Yep. <laughs> and it's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> so, you know what, Lenny? I agree with you. <laughs> if we're ever going to have to take. Leonard Bernstein versus the Hollywood machine. Who the fuck am I supposed to side with? Yeah. The genius. The musical genius. Other than that, like, I do not have a problem with changing the order around from story perspective because I'm like, Robert Wise is right. We're making a goddamn movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a stage show. We're taking attention line through. And I will say the story holds up remarkably well. And I mean, that makes sense because of how the, the play works, because of how iconic it's become. The story holds up really well, and it works for the tension of this movie. Like, I totally understand you needing to cut that when you're on stage, when it's live, when the tragedy's much more in your face. But on screen, no, keep it going. Especially when we've hit the tragedy right leading up to the last 30 minutes of this movie, or 45 minutes of this movie. The writing's not the issue with this movie, and my God, we have talented people involved. Let's talk about our directing. On our... We have two directors for this movie. Jerome Robbins, who did the choreography. This is the only film he ever directed, and we'll talk about why. But it was based on him also directing the stage production, choreographing the stage production, one of the biggest reasons behind the vision for this show. We also have Robert Wise. Before this, Robert Wise directed The Magnificent Ambersons, The Curse of the Cat People, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Executive Suite, Somebody Up There Likes Me, Run Silent, Run Deep, and I Want to Live. After, The Haunting, The Sound of Music, The Sand Pebbles, Star, The Andromeda Strain, The Hindenburg, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. What? 
Yes. Robert Wise, past featured on this show. I, I always forget about that. Robert Wise is a fantastic film director. One of the second tier legends, honestly, in movie making. And probably gets up there mostly for the sound of music, by the way. Because mm-hmm. it's the sound wow. of music. Jerome refused to work on this film at all, in any capacity, if he wasn't allowed to direct. I mean, Gaslight Gay Keep Girl Boss. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, singular vision, you let me behind the camera. Producer Walter Mirisch was a little bit nervous about handing the reins over to a first-time ever director, and rightfully so. We're dealing with what at the time is going to be a significant amount of money. It's going to be a giant deal. We better get it right. So he decides, let's bring in Robert Wise. This is a guy who knows what the hell he's doing. Robert Wise will direct the dramatic sequences, Mm -hmm. and Jerome Robbins will do the music. It's fine. Done it. It works out. That's not that uncommon. No, it's really not. Honestly, a lot of directors just don't have the ability to like, I don't know how I'm supposed to film a large dance number. Except that Robbins began to shoot and shoot and shoot. He would do numerous upon numerous takes of scenes. After 45 days of filming was like 24 days over time budget. It was incredibly overblown by budget behind schedule. And they fired him. Jerome Robbins only completed four sequences for the movie. The prologue, cool, I Feel Pretty, and America. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> now, everything else had been rehearsed and choreographed. Yeah, because it's probably So bad. they had all the numbers prepared. Sure. Wise then just wrapped up filming those sequences. But again, <laughs> you can fucking tell. You can tell that with Cool and America, there is a big singular vision thinking behind how that camera is going to sit how that dancing's going to look. There's all sorts of weird, interesting angles. And then you have something like the duet between Tony and Maria, where it is gorgeous, but it is stiff and static. And it makes not a goddamn lick of sense compared to the other numbers in the movie. Shout out to Dear Evan Hansen. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I think about people just standing there singing versus a big dance number, I do think about the 2017 Tony Awards where Dear Evan Hansen won over The Great Comet. And I think my comment, I saw The Great Comet on Broadway with Josh Groban before it closed. And and I do remember saying like, so you're going to tell me that a musical, they stand there in front of screens and sing the songs that are fine, but in a musical that's very questionable, won over a musical where they are singing dancing out in the audience throwing free pierogies at me playing instruments at the same time that those two are comparable and dear evan hansen wins yeah and i feel like you have the same tension here between scenes in west side story (sighs) it's truly the crux of the problem in musical theater Jerome Robbins was such a singular visual eye for choreography. I mean, the man, this is the only film he ever made, and the man was still going to go on to be a legend for all the work he did on Broadway, all the shit he did on stage, because this isn't the only thing he ever did. And even if it was, it would still be considered iconic because it led to so many different people going, oh, we can do that on stage? Well, (laughs) we can pull that off. So Robert Wise is a really good director. But you think about The Sound of Music and how that looks. It's a very different movie. Yes. Far less dancing. He directed the part of 
sound of music as a, the parts that were a love story as a love story. He didn't do that here. He doesn't understand mm. the drama at all. No. I understand that Robbins had lost them so much fucking money by that point that they felt like we have to cut bait. This guy's never directed a movie in his life and it's just not going to work. But on the flip side of it, God, I wish they'd figured out just how to tell him, no, you get three takes and that's it. But you can still do whatever the fuck you want. God, what, what was the producer doing? <laughs> but they're just, they, it's like he rushed all of the, the straight scenes at that point where it's just like, let's just go. Let's just, just get. Well, and we that can. was probably a factor too. And now we have, now we're so behind the eight ball. It took six months to film this movie. Okay. I think if I was those actors, I would want to kill someone. So that makes sense <laughs> at that point. But I mean, it be, when it's costing that much money, eventually, and Robert Wise is one of those directors who's known for being workmanlike. A guy who is just known to be like, we're here, we're making the movie, we're getting it done. Let's move on. Like, that's the kind of stuff he and did. And I appreciate and can respect that. Like, I like the whole show up, let's be prepared, do our job, let's go home. Like, that's great. But, but not with this, not with such a visual movie. Part of your job as the director, like the actors are supposed to show up knowing their lines and their choreography. The crew is supposed to have the set ready to go. The director is supposed to be there to help make the moments work while he's recording it all. And when those things aren't coming together, his job is to fix that. Yeah. By giving direction and he did not do that when it came to most of those straight scenes yeah it's it's a mess it's a mess if they're not dancing the direction is not great no it's not if they're dancing Rita Marino's on screen it's fabulous yeah not for me to always make everything about Star Wars but because that is please do I do I often say another hot take of mine is that Star Wars, and frankly, anything that John Williams has worked on, I, actually, Harry Potter will also be a really big one, it would be nothing without John Williams. Like, Oh, yes. Like, it would be, like, just some fucking thing. Like, Kate, with West Side Story, like, it would be, like, just okay. Like, yeah. none of this would fucking fly without without Leonard Bernstein. It is the, the different, the, like, tipping point difference here is the music. N and no one would put up with this shit if it wasn't for the music. I believe that about Star Wars, whatever, because like Attack of the Clones, for example, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? They don't love each other. This is stupid. This is dumb. And then he hits you with the Across the Stars and you're like, you know what? Okay. Maybe I am feeling something. Maybe I'm feeling something. And then in this, it Leonard Bernstein's the same thing. You're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why? Why is he like, you can't, like, he's, he's, they're just singing to each other on a, on a fire escape. Like, everyone can hear them. This is a New York City street. Like, this is, like, I, like, this is a New York City street, and everybody on the street would know and be gossiping about it. Like, this doesn't make any fucking sense, but you're like, damn, it is a bop, though. <laughs> we're like, gonna have a, we're gonna have a gang fight comprised of us playing, um, leapfrog over each other. Like, or it's, you know what? There's a lot of snapping and it works. Uh, like, it does. you know, it does. The snapping is important. It is integral to our character building. Like, you know, and, and you're like, you know what? And it works. But that's the thing. There are certain pieces of media where like, well, the other example I like to give is like where the music is very important, but it's not the tipping point is like a Miyazaki movie, for example. A Miyazaki movie in itself is very, very good. 
you put the music on it and then it's like wow this is this is another level this is just mwah. but by itself it's already you're like wow amazing beautiful 100 yeah. whatever no no in this in the in these special little situations it's like the music is the only thing holding this shit together yep <laughs> like, and i'm okay with that <laughs> like, yeah. so the directing has problems problems fun notes about the production they only filmed two shots on location in New York, although they are massive parts of the story. The street scenes were shot on West 68th between Amsterdam and the West End, and the playground was shot at East 110th between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Everything else was done on sound stages. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Love it. There's a lot of weird costume stuff going on. It's Irene Sheriff, who we've talked about multiple times now, both for American in Paris. Stars Born 54, Guys and Dolls, magnificent costumes. Over the course of the production, the actors wore through 200 pairs of shoes, applied 100 pounds of makeup, split 27 pairs of pants, and performed in 30 separate recording sessions. Yeah, if I was, if I was the costume designer and I had to deal with Jerome Robbins making them do everything 80,000 times, I think I would kill someone. I would be like, you go through another pair of Leducas and I'm coming for your kneecaps. From <laughs> like, top to bottom, it was probably impacting production to where they were like, it's a liability to keep him involved anymore. There's a note down here later. The dancers got shin splints because of how much they had to dance on concrete. Wait, they, they did the dance scenes on the concrete? Yes. Oh. On location, yeah. When I did specifically America, I believe that was, I mean, I had done... I danced seven days a week my entire life. I believe that was the first time I ever experienced shin splints was doing that. And that was in a dance studio with floor, like with floating floor. So, And it's concrete because it's concrete not only on location, but it's also concrete on the sound stages. Yeah, it's, it's bonkers. He oh was probably going to kill someone. <laughs> there's, there's other wild ass notes about the dancing later on. But in order to allow flexibility and color, the jeans were dyed, re-dyed, and distressed by using elastic thread. Okay. Huh. They made it look distressed by using that, but then they also allowed the flexibility for all the dancing they had to do. Wow. So they could actually show up as jeans on screen. They had to, like, create jeggings themselves. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah. fucking awesome. Did. That's Much pretty respect. cool. Mm-hmm. And to allow low-angle shooting with the 70-millimeter cameras that they were using, they built interior sets six feet off the ground. Wait. So to get some of those shots, like in cool, they're six feet up so the camera can come up from under them. Oh, oh my okay. God. Okay, I get that. That makes sense. That's cool. That's just the cool so trick. So then you had to make it be able to support the weight of people jumping and dancing on it. <laughs> oh. Hi, shout out to the crew of this of this film. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. All right, let's let's talk about the cast. Let's get into it. Oh no. First to note, the original Broadway cast was briefly considered for the show, but all of them were considered to be aged out of the roles, which is wild to think about, but the production did start around 57. Mm -hmm. So on screen, they just had decided that, and that led to... Deciding to cast a lot of non-singers, particularly our leads. <laughs> and we start with not a non-singer. I will give her credit. 
we have Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko, a.k.a. Natalie Wood, playing Maria. Before this, she was in The Bride Wore Boots, The Ghost of Mrs. Mir, Miracle on 34th Street, talked about that movie here, The Jackpot, Rebel Without a Cause, and Splendor in the Grass. After this, Gypsy, Inside Daisy Clover, This Property is Condemned, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and The Candidate. What do we think of Natalie Wood in this movie? She's a hot pile of garbage. <laughs> I'll, I'll give her this. They didn't give her a lot to do. Like they they like hung her out to dry. Yeah, I think they hung her out to dry. When the tragedy hits and she starts actually acting, because you can see it. You can see the moment when she goes from I'm just having to lip sync to this right now to I am actually invested in acting. Some of those scenes when she's lip syncing and she's and she's getting teary and upset about Tony and everything. You're like, holy fuck. Yeah. Okay. No, it's yeah. Natalie Wood. It's movie star Natalie Wood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll allow that. However, <laughs> because she's a cardboard cutout the whole movie, when we get to that point, I have a really hard time believing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's that's part of the problem. I just wish, like in Romeo and Juliet, she also died. That's where I'm at with her at that point. That's yeah. a And that's a big thing, like, Maria doesn't die in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Not in this story. Which as a story is fine. Like they don't both need to die. It's just, it's yeah. tragic that any of them had to die. This is stupid. Yes. Yeah. Just like in Romeo and Juliet. This is stupid. Y'all are being dramatic over stupid bullshit. God, they are. They're so dramatic. Yeah. Like this one almost more because of all the dancing. It's a <laughs> lot. It's a lot of dancing over stupid shit. I mean, there is a knifing. Yeah. But they didn't have to have a knifing. So, you know. And that accent. Oh, that accent. Oh, accent. Yeah. So awful. What's about what's all this said? I mean, it, that's just an era of film where you're just like, we better. don't have time to unpack all of that. But it's like glaringly bad. It's like bad. she overrules her R. She's like, Anita. Anita. And you're like, oh, fucking God. Like she's trying really oh, hard on no. only specific words. Like you could try. What's really sad is that there's a couple of lines where Marnie Nixon actually subs in the accent for her. And I'm like, on even those, it makes it even worse. It does. It really does. It's such the white overdoing of the accent. It's bad enough that you're already putting her in pseudo brown face. You need to get the dialect right. And especially because everybody else around her, including another white guy who we are going to talk about, try to tone it down. <laughs> George Sykris as Bernardo does a much better job with the dialect. Jeez Louise. Well, I this this is my other question is they they chose all like film actors because they didn't choose stage people. They chose film actors for our two leads. So that that was gonna be my question. Yeah. Was because if you choose stage people, <laughs> at least at that time, although it still happens, so I don't know why I said that. You know, people who look ethnically ambiguous, they're ready to do any accent. They're ready, they're prepared, of they've course. been doing it. So, um, <laughs> especially with stage actors, but I'm sure also with film. I could understand why that makes sense. And then for our leads, girl, what are you doing? <sighs> I just... To her credit and to both of our leads' credits, they've actually, you know, got good perspective in how they've talked about it. A lot of the cast thought she was a little bit aloof, a little bit, you know, separate. Um, mm -hmm. But apparently she was 
most reports say she isolated herself because of how unsure she felt about the role. She's like, I don't feel like this is my role. I don't feel like this is right. Now, apparently, also, she did have a list of people she was not a fan of. She did have a list. <laughs> what? And apparently, unbeknownst to him, Richard Boehmer got on that list. Now, <laughs> in talking about it, he thinks that they had a screen test back before, and he thinks that screen test went you know, sideways, and he thinks mm-hmm. maybe that's what caused it. He wasn't really sure. A few years after doing the movie, they actually ran into each other at a party mm-hmm. and she was perfectly kind and nice and they chatted for a while. So he's like, I don't really know. There's conjecture that it was about Warren Beatty not getting cast as Tony, but that's actually been disproven only because of the timing. She was still with Robert Wagner at the time of making this movie. So she wouldn't have been dating Warren Beatty and they actually didn't get along when they made Splendor in the Grass. However... <laughs> Richard Boehmer only found out about being on the shit list when he talked to his co-star, Russ Tamblin, while making Twin Peaks. Call me Marie Kondo because I do love mess. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. The fact that Richard Boehmer only found out by talking to Russ Tamblin while making David Lynch's weird ass television drama. That is wild. Yeah. So Natalie, Natalie had a shit list. Natalie had a shit list. Good for her. Girl boss. Uh, not girl boss. Just like, I've dealt with enough bullshit. I will fight you. <laughs> Who could have been better? They had some models in mind. So some definite non-singers because Natalie Wood could sing. She actually did record all of the songs. Yeah, I remember hearing that. And then I was like, so why did they replace her? She recorded all the songs. The producers had the option to use her or dub in. They decided to dub in. And generally speaking, a lot of the dubbing happened because they pitched up that music. From what it's been told, they couldn't hit the higher notes quite as well as bringing somebody in to dub. Musical directors made that choice. But there are recordings available of Natalie Wood doing all the music as well. Um, If you get big expanded versions of the soundtrack, you can find her recordings of the songs. So she did do it all. The other weird part is they didn't tell her (laughs) until they finished all this shit. Barney Nixon did a recording session with Natalie Wood. Like they knew they were going to do it to see which one, but they didn't tell Natalie Wood. They'd already decided to dub her. I think I knew that part because didn't didn't this not come out until like recently in the past like 10 years? I don't know. It's it's in the trivia. And the, the other weird part is. Marnie Nixon was in those recording sessions. They uh-huh. went back and forth to give them the option. Then Natalie Wood lip synced and the performance was so different that Marnie Nixon had to go re-record the dub to match Aww. the acting that Natalie Wood did <laughs> because Natalie Wood is a fucking great actress, <laughs> but that's going to change how you, it's, it's a mess. It's a fucking mess. <laughs> they did her dirty along with her being such just, a wet rag for the first half of the movie. So who could have been better? We have actual just models. We have Suzanne Plachette and Jill St. John. I mean, if you're going to dub them, then who cares? But I know. Just, I need someone who's not made of cardboard. And Audrey Hepburn. Huh. I would like someone who is of the Latin community. That would, you know, be preferable, yeah. I think. Someone of a community that typically speaks Spanish. Any of them. And to be fair, the original Marie on Broadway was a white lady. It's Carol Weathers. There was some consternation about the fact of why did you not cast her? She actually got the role better than anybody. But, you know, fair. 
They wanted a star. Mm. I just, I, yeah. I. Baffling. Baffling decision making. But like I say, the, the credit I give her is when it does turn time for her to like act, act. Oh, it's great. It's fantastic. Her f- scene in the finale, wonderful. Because you feel it. You feel it in your gut from her. But it just, you don't get the payoff from the earlier scenes. How do you fire this gun, Chino? Just by pulling this little trigger. How many bullets are left, Chino? Enough for you. And you. All of you. You all killed him. And my brother. And Riff. Not with bullets and guns. With hate. Well, I can kill too, because now I have eight. How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me. Next, we have Richard Bamer playing Tony. Oh, Richard, Richard, this was not your film. Before this, he was in Johnny Tremaine and High Time. After this, The Longest Day, The Stripper, lots of television, including Twin Peaks, My Girl 2, Foxfire, and he did return for the Twin Peaks extra season. What do we think of Richard Bamer in this movie? I feel like he was also given the short end of the stick here. Such like, the short end of the stick. Like, in my opinion, Tony should be the most conflicted character in the entire show. Yes. Like, to me, and I, I really, I have a feeling this is the way they're going to go with the new one, the Steven Spielberg one. Because yeah. Spielberg... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I'm not excited about Ansel, but... No, I'm not. I'm not excited about him at all. But I feel like this is the direction they're going to go with him, is that Tony should be a guy who is a rough-and-tumble guy, who has hustled, who's kind of an asshole, who's done all of the bad gangster shit. But it's literally just to get by. He has no beef with people. He doesn't buy into all this race bullshit. It's just... This is how I've lived my life. These are the people in my in my life. I don't buy into this turf war crap. But sometimes you got to mug a guy to make make a day work. Like you're on my turf where I've got this deal or you're cutting into how we make our little extra money. I got to shake you down. Okay, cool. Whatever. That's what he's done most of his life. Well, and at the beginning of the show, he's like, you know, I got a real job now. Like, exactly. Right, you know, exactly. That should be how they approach Tony. It's just like a guy who has all the capability. Like we should know when we meet him, we should feel it when we see him. That guy can fuck you up. He doesn't want to. He doesn't like doing that, but he could. This is precisely how Richard Bamer wanted to play the role. (sighs) That is exactly what he envisioned Tony as. He's talked about it. He hates this performance. Damn. He really hates how it came out. Sad for him for that. And he says, Robert Wise forced him to play the nicest guy in the city. Wise told him, you've got to be the golden child. And he's like, that doesn't fit anything in this story. It makes no sense. I'm fine with the Puerto Ricans being like, that guy's all right. Like, he never gives a shit. Like, when he's on his own, he never gives a shit. Like, if that was the line, but that's not the setup. Not in this movie. Oh. Yeah, they're just like, I'm just a guy. And you're like, okay, so it, you're like, okay, I guess they should be together because they're both kind of nice. Like, right. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> it. There's no chemistry between them. It's just they're both so sweet and innocent. So yeah. I guess they have to be together. 
We just love a person. <laughs> you know what the dissonance is? Because there's all this stuff like Anita, she's acting her, she's acting her head off, whatever. And there's a ton of people like warning her, warning her away from him. And they're like, oh, he's so rough and tumble, whatever. And meanwhile, he's like, la, 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 la. He's like, I'm not so bad. I just met a girl named Maria and she's pretty. <laughs> and, and like, it's, and it's not just like, this white boy is crazy. It, they're also like, oh, he's also like kind of garbage. And you're like, I don't see that he's garbage. How is uh, he garbage? Just one of few of them. Like, he's terrible. And meanwhile, he's like, I work at a soda shop. No, no, <laughs> you're no, like, no. what? How ridiculous. <laughs> Like, what uh, is, and she just it it the dissonance is very funny and I think that's also I think when I watched it like as a kid or whatever like when he does show up to do the cool number or whatever like he doesn't fit in here <laughs> like how are these his friends no 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 he admitted that he had trouble saying certain lines with a straight face especially the romantic dialogue he was like. It was completely corny. I couldn't get through the lines half the time because it was just so cheesy. Not to make everything about Star Wars. I'm going to be that person, but it's a Hayden Christensen moment. It's a Hayden Christensen moment where I get to say, people are like, oh, it was so wooden or whatever. I'm like, that's because George made him do it that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Robert Wise made Richard Boehmer do this. I must say, I'm so glad he's going to be able to get to redeem himself. Finally, we win. We win. <laughs> Why don't Richard Beamer get his hating Christensen in the uh, Kenobi series moment? I know. I know. <laughs> he actually walked out of the London premiere because he was just so frustrated with the performance. I do feel I do have sympathy for him for that. Yeah. And here's the thing, like I, I think he's fine with it in terms of like, man, I was in one of the most famous movies ever made. Like, I'm not yeah. gonna complain. But he's just like, this should have been so much better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as an artist, that would really piss me off to be oh, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I this is a very cool role and a very cool story, and I think it should be this way. And they're like, nah, you got to do it as bland as possible. And then everybody's like, this is cool. And you're like, but I don't want to do it that way. Who could have been better? Co-star Russ Tamblin Tried out for Tony, didn't get the role. They called him back for Riff instead. Okay. Okay. All right. Anybody they put in this, I don't know if they're going to pull it off. But we also have... A bunch of non-singers. We have Anthony Perkins. What? Warren Beatty, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Bobby Darren. Burt Reynolds. What? Now you got to think 1961 Burt Reynolds. There's still nobody knows also, who he is, Burt Reynolds. For no. a dollar, name a singer. <laughs> and Richard Chamberlain. For a dollar, name a singer. Like, this is how I feel whenever they announce the casting for stuff. Like, yeah. when they announced the Wicked casting and I was like, at least Ariana Grande is a singer and does have a theater background, whatever. But I was like, I'm always like, for a dollar, name a theater person. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like thank God they sent the Arivo because Jesus Christ, for a dollar, name a theater person. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard. They are actors. <laughs> God damn. All right. Let's talk about some people who are a little bit better. We have Russ Tamblin playing Riff, father of Amber Tamblin. Before this, he was in 1950's Father of the Bride, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Peyton Place in 1957, High School Confidential, and Cimarron. After this, How the West Was Won, The Haunting, Son of a Gunfighter, The Last Movie, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Twin Peaks, Cabin Boy, Drive, Django Unchained, The New Twin Peaks, and featured in The Haunting of Hill House recently. So I guess there's a West Side Story to Twin Peaks pipeline. 
just for these two. Which, I mean, to be fair, you have Audrey's dad and you have the weird psycho psychiatrist guy. Those are great roles for those two. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah, it's weird to think about. Russ is doing a perfectly good job here with Riff. He's yeah. fine. He's much better than those two. Yeah. Everybody's getting dubbed. Everyone's getting dubbed. So it just is the way it is. Even Rita Moreno's getting dubbed for some of the songs because they don't fit in her range. They just didn't. It's terrible. It's terrible. That's hateful. It's hateful. But what Russ has is the charm of the understanding of the role. He at least gets the fucking assignment of what he's supposed to be doing here. Unlike a lot of other people. And, And Riff's such an obvious character. It's fine. And he can dance. He can actually dance. In fact, he was embarrassed by his dancing for the role until at the premiere, Fred Astaire walked over to him and said, I admire your dancing. Wow. wow. Yeah. That is, uh, that is the person you want to say that they like your dancing. Russ Tamlin was like, well, I'll never complain about my dancing again. <laughs> Damn. I mean, I would say that Riff is one of the bigger dancing roles. It's like on par with Bernardo, and it's also yeah. a different kind of dancing that Riff has to do. Yeah. Riff kind of has to go through three or four different styles in terms of what he's got to pull off here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also had to do, when we did in workshop, I had to do cool as well. And um, it was very difficult, very hard. And I was mm-hmm. like, Jerome Robbins, my enemy. Ooh, <laughs> like, we, will, we will get into cool. There, It's a nightmare number. It is. It's a nightmare. But Russ Tamblin, he quits himself very well in this movie. He does a great job. Now let's get to our two best actors of the movie. We start with Miss Rita Moreno as Anita, a living fucking legend. She's done even more stage than screen, and even her screen roles are legendary. Before this, she was in Singing in the Rain, The King and I, and makes other dancing appearances. Then after this, she's in Summer and Smoke, Marlowe, Carnal Knowledge, The Electric Company on television. She played Violet on the 9 to 5 television series. She's the voice of Carmen Sandiego from the 90s cartoon. I didn't know that. Yeah. Angus, Slums of Beverly Hills, Blue Moon, Pinheiro, Oz on television, Casa de los Babies, Rio 2, and One Day at a Time. And coming soon, she will be appearing in the 2021 remake of West Side Story. What do we think of Rita Moreno in this movie? She's she's the star. <laughs> oh my God. She the star. is the reason that this movie is so amazing, truly. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's the reason to buy a ticket. She's it. She's not on screen for half the movie and she's still holding it together. She's still it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by construction of the show, she has the best songs. Mm-hmm. She has some of the most interesting parts musically, like when they do the, like, the five-part the quintet, quintet yeah. situation. Yeah. Like, she has some of the most interesting stuff to do, both acting, dancing, and music-wise, by definition. So they had to pick somebody who had the range. I think that was the piece, was that they could get away with having somebody who was, like, kind of good at, like, one thing and could fudge the rest of the stuff for everything else. But for her part, like, it's built into the way the show is you needed somebody who already had the range, so they were going to already be somebody who's going to knock that out of the park mm-hmm. yep. kind of situation. Not to mention that she has to replace Cheetah Rivera. 
So she she has to come in on screen and replace another fucking legend, yeah. which is wild. Yeah. Huh. No, she's the best part of the whole movie. A content warning here for abuse. During filming of the taunting scene, she was immediately reduced to tears because it triggered childhood memories of abuse for her. They immediately stopped filming. All the members of the Jets crew started to comfort her and pointed out that, hey, the audience is going to hate us so much more for what we're doing right now. We promise you. (laughs) Every single one of those dudes was like, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. We just have to get through it. I promise you. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah. Literally, this is, this, that is awful. Somehow I recently ended up on uh, actually intimacy coordinator TikTok. I'm I'm deep into film TikTok now. And where they do talk about like, oh, things that happen on a lot of sets and like how they're brought in to be like, I didn't talk about all kinds of things and how like actors are just used to pretty horrible shit happening to them. And they're like, just be like that sometimes. And you're just like, but it doesn't have to be like that, actually. But I do love that every single one of those boys went, oh, my God. Okay. Okay. No, 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 no. I promise you. We're, we're going to make it so you're the hero, okay? <laughs> we're going to make this good. <laughs> is that in the musical or is that just in the movie? I don't know if that scene is in the musical. I don't know that for certain. I think them harassing her is. Yes. I, I, I don't is. know that it gets that intense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fairly certain they harass her. However, she also stated that her reading of Don't You Touch Me After the Jets Attack was an imitation of her then-boyfriend, Marlon Brando, who noticed it at the premiere. Rita Moreno dated Marlon Brando for a little while. Who knew? Of course she did. Girl boss. Amazing. Girl boss. You know. All right. Let's also talk about another really great performance. That is Georges Chakras as Bernardo. Again, white dude, Greek dude. But does a very good job. Uh, before this, he has an uncredited roles as chorus or dancer in the movie Stars and Stripes Forever. Gentlemen prefer blondes, Brigadoon, White Christmas, and there's no business like show business because he is a stage guy. After this, he was in Diamond Head, Is Paris Burning, The Young Girls of Roquefort, and then did tons and tons of guest star appearances on television. Okay. The other weird thing is he played Riff in the original West End production of West Side Story. Shut up. <laughs> Nar. Yeah. Wow. Oh, shit. Bernardo played Riff. I can't deal with that. That's so much. That is so fucked up. That's that's so much. That's so much. Yes. Wow. I got to say, though, he does a great job. Yeah. He he is very good. He grounds the character. Like, yeah, it's that thing of. He probably, because, you know, Rita's talked about it. It was like, you look like you've been dumped in mud. And he's like, I don't, I, whatever, man. <laughs> like, even he, you can tell he was just like, we gotta make a movie, I guess. But, again, he gets the assignment. He knows that this is a human. He He's not trying to do the overacting of the ethnicity. He's just like, I am Bernardo. This is the types of things I would do as a character, so I'm just gonna do that and roll with it. And I'm gonna get the dialect as correct as I can without trying to push it over the top. Mm-hmm. And then he, in America, there's just so much good going on. There's just so much good that he's he's matching Rita fucking Moreno, which is yeah. bonkers to think about. Well, and there's differences in that piece between the stage version and the movie version in that in the stage version, 
there are no men in it, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. In the stage version, it is Anita and Rosaria. Yeah. Bernardo gets brought into it in the movie. And it it changes the meaning. It changes the meaning and it changes the dynamic quite a lot. Um, and not in a bad way. It's just mm-hmm. it it fits in the movie. Um, but it's interesting. I I don't I mean, I don't know if they did that because they were like, Yeah, we weren't nurring or I think it makes it more of a conversation about their experience. Because that's that's the aim of the song. And yeah. by, I think in the musical, it just being the ladies makes total sense. It's like, yeah. this is our experience. We're talking to each other. It's a moment to showcase those two performers. Right. Yeah. But for this movie, if this is part of the point you're trying to make, having that ensemble be a part of that conversation, I think is a slightly more impactful with Anita being the one who is our super sassy resident cast member being the one to lead this conversation. And then, you know, we already know her and Bernardo, you know, bicker back and forth. It being the conversation between them is very flirty and fun. Yeah. I think that's the other piece. That's the other piece there is that it's, it's a good, it's a good just character building there. I mean, I mean, that's half of the reason why it works and then why it's like iconic. So those two have chemistry. They actually have chemistry. Remember chemistry it. in movies. What was that? Uh, you know what? Oscar Isaac, he's got chemistry in movies. He's, and you put anybody on screen with that man, he's got it. He's got chemistry. Put Oscar Isaac and Rita Moreno in a movie together. Holy shit. <laughs> Wait a minute. We'll be so hot. Okay. All right. Now we got something cooking. And also, we talk about the writing of that song changed. They changed the writing for the movie because in the stage version, it's just very much centered on, you know, Puerto Ricans. And eventually it just becomes this parody of their experience versus in this, it's a back and forth about we're talking about what we love about America. And Bernardo's pointing out all the problems with America. <laughs> Here you are free and you have pride. As long as you stay on your own side. Free to be anything you choose. Free to wear devils and shine shoes. Everywhere crime in America, organized crime in America, terrible time in America. You forget I'm in America. Yeah, it's it's the opposite. If I am remembering correctly, yep. it's Anita who's the one who's like, yeah, but doesn't America like suck uh, <laughs> in the original one? Yeah. Yep. They change it quite quite a lot, which is yeah. interesting. He got the assignment and he did a great job. So good for him. And that leads us to Arpon's random persons of note. Nope. These are people who didn't necessarily have the biggest roles, but they're people who have quite interesting stories. We have William Bramley playing Krupke. He originated that role on Broadway. Tony Mordente playing Action. He also originated his role and was married to Cheetah Rivera, the original Anita. David Winters playing A-Rab. He originally played Baby John on Broadway, then choreographed a ton of movies for Elvis and Ann Margaret later. And he also directed the seminal 80s skateboard film Thrashin'. What? Yeah. Elliot Feld, who played Baby John, he is a legendary ballet dancer and choreographer. He was the original child prince in the Balanchine production of The Nutcracker. Shut up. The original, original child prince. Baby John. I am dropping some more lore in that I did do the Nutcracker all growing up. Uh, so this is a lot. This is a lot for mm-hmm. me. Wow. 
but he apparently collapsed during filming of Cool and wound up hospitalized with pneumonia. Holy Aww. shit. That's how intense Cool was. Harvey Evans, who played Mouthpiece, said that when they finished wrapping that scene, they ritually burned their knee pads. We had to wear knee pads. We we all we had we had to all wear to wear jeans and knee pads because that's because that fucking number is that intense. Traumatic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We have Gus Traconis playing Indio. He started as a dancer, did a bunch of TV directing. He was married to Goldie Hawn from 1969 to 1976 before she ran off with Warren Beatty for a bit. His sister, Gina Traconis, is Graziella in this movie. It's good. It's weird. What? Let's get on to Yvonne Wilder playing Consuelo. She was Uncle Jesse's mom on Full House. No, I can't do with this, love. <laughs> what is this? Uncredited in this movie, John Aston playing Gladhand. Gomez yep. Adams himself yep. is him. leading the dance. <laughs> what? Yep. Gomez Adams. Yep. It's John Aston. It's Sean Aston's dad. Elaine Joyce playing Hotsey, Tiger's girlfriend. She was married to Neil Simon from 1999 until his passing and also appeared in a number of different roles in film and TV. Priscilla Lopez playing a child extra. She created the role Diana Morales for a chorus line singing Nothing and What I Did for Love is widely considered the first fully realized Puerto Rican character on Broadway. Oh my God. I have I have a unique trauma tied to that song as well um, <laughs> in that first song. Voice lesson showcase at some point in uh my young career. My mom was like, "You have do have to sing that song at one point," and she would just uh like drill me in, with that song in the car, and she'd be like, "You didn't get the words right. We're starting it again and again." So now every time I hear it, I'm like, "Oh no, I'm gonna fuck up the words <laughs> to that song." Yeah, uh, chorus line, my enemy. <laughs> That's a lot of lot of enemies involved in this movie. Yeah, Jerome, Jerome Robbins, Robbins, my enemy. Chorus, chorus line, line, my enemy. Oof. And finally, we do mention Marnie Nixon. We talked about her earlier. Not only did she dub Natalie Wood, she did the quintet for Rita Moreno because of how high the notes got on that. Yeah. Um, Rita Moreno does almost all the rest of her own songs. Apparently, Marty Nixon also looped the lines Teodoro Anton and Maria's final line, Don't You Touch Him, which, why? I don't fucking know, but whatever. That's wild. However, because of how much work she did for this movie, Nixon felt she was entitled to a cut of the album royalties. She's performing a lot of these songs. The producers weren't willing to do it. They're like, no, mm. money, burr. So a fucking treasure and legend, Leonard fucking Bernstein, <laughs> offered... One quarter of 1%, which was a lot of fucking money off the greatest selling album of all time for a while, because she had been a performer in his New York Philharmonic concerts as a singer. And so he was like, I'm going to do her a solid and give her that. And that became industry standard. Leonard fucking Bernstein. Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, my enemy for the time signatures, but my king for workers' rights. So, like. Yes. Well, that's he did her a solid. He did the right thing. That was not a small amount of money. No, not for that yeah. fucking album. That was not a small amount of money. I did forget one who could have been better for Tony, and that is one Sir Elvis Presley. What? Yeah, I mean, it would have been awful. They wanted Elvis Presley to to consider yeah. it, but Tom Colonel Tom Parker wouldn't let him do it. 
but he he could have been suave. He would have been charming. I don't. I, it might have been stiff as hell, but he would have been he would have been more charming than Richard Bamer. That would have been crazy. True. Yeah. Let's get on to awards. This film was nominated for eleven Academy Awards. Damn. It only lost one. It lost Best Adapted Screenplay. It won ten Academy Awards, beating Gigi for the most Oscars for a musical ever. Wow. Gigi. Love that movie. It won Best Musical Score, Best Editing, Best Sound, Best Costume Design Color, Best Art Set Decoration Color, Best Cinematography, Best Director. It's the first Academy Award for co-directors, which would not be repeated until No Country for Old Men 46 years later. Wow. I was going to say, what did it lose to? I'll look it up in just a moment. Okay. Best Supporting Actress for Rita Moreno. Best Supporting Actor for George Shakiris. And Best Picture. Damn. Ten Academy Awards. I mean, it slaps. I get it. <laughs> yeah, but what, yeah, what was it up against for Best Picture? So getting a feel for what we've got on the Best Picture side, we had Fanny, The Guns of Navarone, The Hustler, and Judgment at Nuremberg. Holy nope. shit. This okay, that makes sense. All day long. On Best Director, he's up against Fellini for La Dolce Vita, The Guns of Navarone, Robert Rawson for The Hustler, and Stanley Kramer for Judgment at Nuremberg. Rita Moreno beat out Julie Garland, Lotta Lenya, Una Merkel, and Faye Bainter. All right. Damn. Yes, you did. George Shikris beat out Montgomery Clift, Peter Falk, Jackie Gleason, and George C. Scott. Club Holy over shit. with that award, man. Now, a lot of this is The Hustler and Judgment at Nuremberg, because Judgment at Nuremberg had fucking everyone. Everyone was in that goddamn movie. <laughs> William Shatner's in that movie for a hot second for no good reason. Like, William. every fucking actor was in Judgment at Nuremberg. Damn. It it was not an easy competition, but part of this is that it's such a groundbreaking visual film. Like, it really is. It's doing a whole lot. Even as boring as some of those dramatic sequences are, even as boring as the scene where they're in front of that stained glass, when they hit that final shot, it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And you're mm -hmm. like, well, God damn it. <laughs> And the musical itself is like an interesting concept and like revolutionary for its time. Yeah. And the movie is bringing that to the mass audiences. So people are like, this shit is crazy. Like New mm -hmm. York's hottest clubhouse, everything. There's dancing. <laughs> there's a knife fight. There's a knife fight. People are snapping. Like, what <laughs> is this? <laughs> wow. It's one of those movies that even if it wasn't as good as the Oscars it's winning here, it blew people out of the water so much that it was just like, well, we have to give it to it, right? Like, we just have to do it. <laughs> All right, that gets us to trivia. As part of keeping tensions high, the rival gangs were instructed to play pranks on each other. <laughs> Constantly throughout the movie. I don't know. Oh, my God. But pranks. Could you imagine encouraging that on a film set? Yeah, no. He, they did the same well. thing happened on The Outsiders. It's true. The Al Wood posters that you see throughout the movie are a reference to Alan K. Wood, one of the production designers. Throughout the movie, you may notice that Natalie Wood is wearing a bracelet on her left wrist. This is because while filming The Green Promise in 1949, she fell on a set bridge that collapsed. And when that happened, her wrist was injured. When it healed, it caused a bone protrusion. 
So from then on in all of her movies, she wears a sizable bracelet on her left wrist to hide that bone protrusion. What? Kind of weird, but okay. Child actor. Weird shit happened, man. During the prologue, when the Jets take a basketball from the kids and then toss it back, the kid that Riff throws it back to is Kit Culkin, the infamous father of the Culkins. What? Yeah. That jackass. That guy. That horrible human. (laughs) What? IMDb's got so much fun stuff. You just got to dig through the trivia every time. To promote the film, Rita Moreno went on the Jack Benny show. Benny made a joke, a dry joke, saying he liked the movie, but what bugged him that was while Tony was dying, instead of getting help, Maria just stands there and sings. I love the pic. The only thing I thought there was just too much singing in it. Well, Jack, a musical's supposed to have a lot of singing. Well, I know, but take that last scene when the boy gets shot. There's his girl standing there singing. <laughs> Here's a fella lying dead, practically dying, and she's standing there singing. I mean, the least she could have done was send for a doctor. Well, they tried that scene with a doctor, but he couldn't sing, so they cut it out. Oh. Well, anyway, who am I to criticize, you know? Especially when you came in on a pass. That woman is a sassy bitch, and I love her for it. I can't deal with that. She is my favorite person ever. Good ups to Jack Benny for setting that up, too. That's just the perfect dry setup for a great punchline. Damn. Here's one that'll blow your mind. Before his passing in 2011, Arthur Lorenz said Disney had once proposed an adaptation of West Side Story with animated cats. I'd like to see it. There was a seven-minute reel shown to them with white cats and black cats as rival gang members and the, quote, Maria Cat came down the rope of a steamer illegally into the country. <laughs> I was about to say Disney drop it in the Disney Shorts collection, and now I'm like, please don't. <laughs> Keep it in the vault. Keep, Keep it, it in, in the, the fucking vault. vault. You know what? Put it in put it in the vault with Dumbo, please. <laughs> Her lover, quote, the Tony Cat got run over. You can't believe how terrible it was. Unquote. Did they just take this and then make the Aristocats? <laughs> yes. That's exactly what happened. It's like the greatest thing I've ever heard. What she came f- down the rope of a steamer illegally into the country. Walt Disney, how how did you find such creative ways to be so offensive? I hate you. <laughs> Why? <sighs> what was the reason? <laughs> I will end it, however, on a good and wonderful and happy Disney note, is that in the 2007 film Enchanted, a number of the Jets, now old men, are cozying up and dancing with ladies in Central Park during the song and dance scenes. Oh, I did know that. I forgot about that. I like that. That's That's very That's very good. And that leads us into rating. So for every film, we have a dedicated rating system specific to the movie. For this film, we could go snaps, we could go playgrounds, we could go knives. It's probably knives, but you know, I'm open to ideas. Officer Krupkeys. How many Krupkeys This movie's a mess. It, it is. is a mess. It's hard to push it down too far, though, because of just how groundbreaking it is. 
I gotta do what I did with Guys and Dolls and go three and a half. It's really watchable. It's really incredible for what it's doing. It's just those two leads are just so stiff. And the directing is pushing right into that. So I can't go that far with it. But you can't also grade it down too much because it's just such a big fucking deal. It's three and a half Krupkies for me. Claudia, what say you? I'm going to give a 4.25. So like a four and a quarter is what I'm going to give it because I'm going to put it it's up there it's top tier for me but there are some things that are very questionable so I'm not gonna not gonna put it any higher I would not put it in like a three star range just because it does so many it has so many things that are very good yeah I'm gonna put it at a four four point two five (laughs) Krupkies four Krupkies in one of his batons (laughs) (laughs) I think I have to go three Wow. So good at right. three, and I think like two and a half of those is just Rita Marino. <laughs> That's love her right, yeah. So very much, and the rest of it's just dancing because dancing is so good. God, it's good. It's really good. I'm like I'm like very happy with it. Um, but I just our lead suck, and I I know it was a pretty standard thing of the time, but I don't care. Um, all of the brown face, it's just uh, nope. It's hard to watch. It just it annoys me to no end. So, no. And that leads us to the end of the episode. Claudia, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about West Side Story. Thank you for for enduring my theater kid lore drops. Um, It was lovely. (laughs) We love that. You know, uh, thank you for having me. It's always a it's always a very fun time to be able to talk about. To be able to talk about musicals without without people being like, oh my god, shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, that's what we're here for. The music stuff again. <sighs> if people wanted to find you on the wide, wide world of the interwebs, where could they find you? Um, so my uh, my social media is I'm at Kaludia says, which is uh, at K A L U D I A says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm on TikTok a lot. And um, I'm the co-host of two podcasts that I mentioned before. So one is RuPalp's Pod Race, which is a Star Wars podcast that is just at RuPalp's Pod Race. And the other is the Mystery Spotcast, which is where my friend and I, one of my other co-hosts, we are forcing ourselves to rewatch all of Supernatural for no reason so that other people don't have to. So <laughs> if you've never gotten into Supernatural or you stopped watching it or whatever, no need to watch any of it. We are going to explain it to you and suffer through it again just for you. That's exactly what we tell people about Riverdale. Just listen to <laughs> us. You don't need yeah. to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's painful. It feels like taking a brick to my head and <laughs> it's a fun time. Um, we talk much like with this movie. Actually, we talk a lot about things where we were like so much good here, but also extremely problematic. So... What's all this then? Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's where you can find me. All right. Well, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.